Oh, good morning. I'd like to ask you, who are you? Well, I mean, who are you really? At the deepest level, how do you identify yourself? Now, this is an important question, and it's one which maybe we don't ask often enough. And our answer to this question, in a lot of ways, defines us. Sometimes we use this to define ourselves, and sometimes other people will use this question to define us for us, to define us for ourselves. At our most basic level, our identity is rooted in our humanness. We are human beings made in the image of God. We are the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. We are the inheritors both of their glory, that they were those who were made to have dominion over all of the earth, and also we're inheritors of their shame, the shame of falling and not living up to that glory. And so we struggle. We struggle because we realize inside of ourselves is this glory, this image of God, but yet it is corrupted within. And we see this in the way that we talk about things. When we don't treat people as we should, we say that it is inhumane. We say that people are dehumanized, sometimes in obvious ways, such as in times in history when people were said to be subhuman. Like during the Atlantic slave trade, when Africans were said to be subhuman. Or during Nazi Germany, when Jews were said to be subhuman. Sometimes we do it in less obvious ways, such as the way in which we don't really care or want to know about the conditions of workers working in sweatshops making us the, the nice toys and clothes that we like to have. So we are human. But for each of us, there's more than that to our identity. I look around and I see a rainbow of colours. We all have different ethnicities. We also all have different nationalities. And these together contribute to our identity. I remember last year when I was uh, taking a colleague on a tour of Hong Kong and we're up on the peak tram. And while we're on the peak tram, these two women started fighting. They, they were hitting each other and yelling and screaming and so there was a delay for the, for the tram to leave. Now I turned and said to my friend, I said, you know, if this was, you know, if it was a real Hong Kong person here, I'll get my phone out and, and record this to put it on YouTube. <laughs> and as I was saying that, the person in front of me turned around and said to me, they're not Hong Kong people. <laughs> you see, to be a real Hong Kong person means that you don't fight on trams, you don't spit on the footpath, you don't throw rubbish in the MTR, and... For people in Hong Kong at the moment, they're very careful to make sure that 
people from elsewhere. Don't mistake them as being from somewhere else. Now, for me, being a New Zealander, there are, there are ways in which I identify myself. You know, to be a New Zealander means that class definitions mean nothing. You know, uh, being a Kiwi means that it doesn't matter if you're high-born or low-born, you get treated the same. It means that you always support the underdog, with one exception, and it's the All Blacks. <laughs> and there are other ways in which we contribute to our identity as well. One is the, uh, the tribe that we, that we choose. Maybe your tribe is a sports team. You know, last weekend, there were the tribes of the 49ers and the Ravens who had a big weekend. <laughs> and I know that there are places in the UK where your identity can be summed up in red or blue. Maybe your identity is a hobby. Maybe you're a surfer. Maybe you're a skater. Maybe it's a style of music. Maybe you're a metaller. Maybe you're a rapper. Maybe you're a goth. Or it could be something you own. You know, one person's a PC and another person's a Mac. One of the most significant parts of our identity must be our occupation. You know, we hear it all the time. I, mean, I take a look around here and I see, well, Brent's a teacher. Uh, I see Warren's an air traffic controller. I see Matt's a professor. And uh, I see all of these different identities that are summed up by your occupation. Everyone invests their identity in something. We all choose to take value in our identity in some way or another. It may be our job, it may be a hobby, it may be our tribe, our family, our country, our ethnicity, but we all choose to invest our identity in something. The problem is, is that none of these things that we invest our identity in are secure. None of them will satisfy us. None of them are able to hold our identity as creatures made in the image of God. They're all fragile and they're all temporary. You know, just, uh, just last week they dug up the bones of uh, Richard Plantagenet. And he had invested his identity in being the king of England. You know, he could have been satisfied with being just part of the royal family. But he was an ambitious person who wanted to be king. And he was king for all of about two years, at which point he was killed. His name was considered muddy. It was considered one of the worst kings that England had ever had for the past 500 years. And he lay in an unmarked grave all of this time. He'd invested his identity in being king, but it 
could not last. Another example recently, we have Lance Armstrong, who had invested his identity in being the best road cyclist in the world. Seven-time Tour de France champion, able to conquer any enemy, even cancer. And yet now his name has been expunged from the record books. As Job famously said, from dust I came, from dust I will return. None of these identities that we choose to invest in are enough for us. Now the film Chariots of Fire tells the story of Great Britain's 1924 Olympic team. The film begins at a memorial service with a lament that there are now only two who can remember those who ran with hope in our hearts and wings on our heels. One of those who ran was Harold Abrahams. Harold Abrahams was a, a Jew who was determined to make a name for himself. Being a Jew in Britain at that time meant that he always felt like he was an outsider. He never quite felt like he could fit in. He always felt he had to prove himself. And so he was prepared to go to lengths that no one else was to prove that he could be a champion. Things like employing a trainer, which at that time was considered the a most ungentlemanly action in sport. As he lined up for the 100 metre final, he says, I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor, four feet wide, in ten lonely seconds to justify my existence. But will I? Harold Abrahams won that gold medal. And he went on to have what most people would consider to be a good life, a successful life. But can 10 seconds ever justify your existence? Is 10 seconds enough to hold our identity? Is any time enough to hold our identity? Now, another one of the runners in Chariots of Fire was Eric Little. Eric Little was born in China to missionary parents. He was China's first Olympic hero. And he said that when he ran, he felt God's pleasure. You could see it when he ran, because you could see him running, and then he would get to a point where he would throw his head back, and he would just be oblivious to everything else around him and run for pure joy. Now his specialist event was the 100 metres, the event that Harold Abrahams ended up winning. But Eric Little did not compete in the 100 metres. When he found out that the heats were on a Sunday, he decided that this was something that he could, a race that he could not run with a clear conscience. And so he gave up running in a specialist event and instead ran in the 400 metres, a race which he had qualified for, but his time was not outstanding and he was considered an outsider. 
Now, Eric Little did not have his identity invested in the winning or losing of that race. He was committed to being a missionary in China, and he'd already decided that when the Olympic Games were over, he would go back to China and work as a missionary here, as his family had done. And yet, Eric Little, against all expectations, won that 400-metre race, winning the gold medal, and in a world record time. After the Olympics, he went to China, as he said he would, and he served as a missionary there during a very tumultuous time in China's history, and ended up dying in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. So what was Eric Little's identity invested in if it was not invested in winning? Well, it wasn't invested in his nationality. You know, he represented Great Britain for the Olympics. He'd also represented Scotland in rugby. But he spent the majority of his time, almost all of his adult life, outside of his home country. Was it in his work? Well, was he just so... Uh, engrossed in the work of doing the missionary work, that that was where his identity was. Well, I don't think it is. Because when he was interred in the Japanese prisoner of war camp, he wasn't despondent. He wasn't depressed. He was actually the major source of encouragement to the other, to the other prisoners, organising games for them and uh, being, uh, playing with the children and doing his best to keep everyone's spirits up. He wasn't someone who acted like his identity had just been taken away by being made a prisoner of war. And I believe that the identity that Eric Little had invested in was his identity as a child of God. Now what does it mean to be a child of God? Well, first of all, it means that we are loved by God. And this love is not conditional. Now, any of you who have children will know this. We love our children no matter what they do. And in fact, you know what? They start off being very uncooperative. They cry at night and wake you up, want to be fed at all hours. They don't change themselves. They mess their nappies. They don't dress themselves, they don't feed themselves, and they are the most uncooperative beings in your household. Yet we love them. And the same way God loves us, no matter how uncooperative we are. No matter how successful we are, or no matter how much of a failure we are, God loves us. Because we are his children. Now, being a child of God also means that there is a family resemblance. Now, I remember last, last year my mother and, and an old childhood friend of hers came to visit us in Hong Kong. and We went to have dinner with her. And when my mother's friend saw my youngest son, Lucas, she went, Cow! <laughs> because... Lucas looks a lot like what I looked like when I was that age. And she hadn't seen me in, I don't know, 10, 20 years or something like that. And she hadn't seen Lucas before and it was like, wow, 
you know, it just took her back in time. There was a family resemblance there. But also there are other ways in which our children resemble us. When I look at my children, I see that they have some of the same weaknesses as I have. Some of the same character flaws, as well as some of the same strengths. They are like us in a lot more than the physical. And we have a family resemblance with God as his children. We are like him and we are becoming more and more like him. His character is growing within us and making us more and more like him. And so as it says in 1 John chapter 3, we purify ourselves. Why? Because we are growing more and more like our Father and he is pure. It is just something that we will do naturally because we are his children. We will grow to become like him and part of that growing is purifying ourselves. Now you may ask yourselves, well children grow but what do they grow up to be? What are we growing up to become? Now of course we won't become God. So what will we become? The Bible can be very helpful for us here. And in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, it says we don't know. We don't know what we will become. But we do know that when we see Christ, then we will know what we'll be like because we will be like him. This is a promise that we are being made more and more like Christ. And when Christ returns in his glory, we also will display that glory. Now in our dog-eat-dog, every-man-for-himself world, to trust in our identity as children of God and not to chase after these other identities that eventually will elude our grasp, may seem crazy. Well, when Eric Little gave up his best chance for a gold medal, people thought he was crazy. When C.T. Studd and the Cambridge Seven gave up a life full of promise to go and join Hudson Taylor as missionaries in China, people thought they were crazy. When the Christians in the early centuries of the church didn't abandon their families when they were struck down with the plague, people thought they were crazy. The world doesn't understand what it means to be a child of God, and so they see these actions as being crazy. The world understands sacrifice if you're going to get something back. The world would understand giving up 100 metres if you knew you were going to win the 400 metres. But it doesn't understand giving up the 100 metres without a care whether you win the 400 metres or not. It understands giving up one career if you can have a better career. It doesn't understand giving up a career to have a career where you won't get the wealth, the prestige that you could have expected in another career. 
It understands being with people and helping them recover from illness if there's a good chance that they will recover and there's no danger to yourself. It doesn't understand if there's every probability that they will do and if you stick around, so will you. It doesn't understand a sacrifice that someone like, something like Dan Cathy, the owner of Chick-fil-A did. When Chick-fil-A was being protested uh, by gay activists, Dan Cathy got, up the, got on the phone and he rang up one of the, uh, one of the leaders of the gay activists who were protesting against Chick-fil-A. And he rang him up just to have a conversation with him, to listen and find out where he was coming from. And over the course of a few weeks and months, Dan Cathy built up a friendship with Shane Windmeyer, this activist who's uh, there pictured with him at, uh, um, before the beginning of a, of a um, baseball game. Dan Cathy never asked them to call off the protests. He never made any demands. All he, all he did was he wanted to have dialogue to try and understand things from, from their point of view and also to, to have a chance to see if he could talk to explain where he was coming from. He was willing to make that sacrifice to just go into dialogue with someone, whether or not they were going to call off a protest or what. Even if they were continuing protesting, he was still going to treat this person like a human being, treat this person as Christ would. And in the end, this person was won over by the friendship of Dan Dan Cathy and did end up calling off the protests. But that's not why he did it. But our world doesn't understand us. And so what do people say? People say that Dan Cathy is just pretending to do this. He's, he's trying to work things out as a way to manipulate things to avoid bad press. But you know what? This is what we are like as children of God because this is what... God is like. The world also does not understand that despite all of our sin, all of the evil that lives within our hearts, that God would take on the form of a human being and die for us. The world does not understand this. They call it foolishness. They mock it. But this is our God. He does it because he loves us. And as children of God, we are called to be like him in what we do. Let me pray. Father God, Thank you that you are our Father.
Thank you that you are making us like you. Lord God, I pray that you would help us to seek our identity not in our job, our occupation, our family, our hobbies, our tribe, or any of these things, but to seek our identity in you as your children and help us to grow up to be like you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.